0: Welcome to the Soho Playhouse Podcast. I'm Darren Lee Cole. This is a show about off-Broadway theater and how it serves the cultural landscapes of New York City, the United States, and the world. We'll chat with the incredible creators and influencers of this unique art form. So now, come with me backstage. Clint Holmes was born in Bournemouth, England. His father, an African American jazz musician, his mother, an English opera star. So you could say Clint truly has performance in his DNA. And it certainly has served him well, leading him all the way to be named Las Vegas Entertainer of the Year. In this episode of Soho Playhouse Podcast, we will discuss with Clint his upbringing, his career, the current state of entertainment in Las Vegas and some very exciting plans for the future. So pour your favorite beverage, sit back, and enjoy this chat with Clint Holmes. Say hi, Clint. Hi, Darren. Or I'll say
1: hi, Clint. Okay, hi, Clint. <laughs> and then I'll say hi, Darren.
0: Good to see you. Very good to see you, Clint. Uh, we're coming to, uh, this podcast is being recorded at our headquarters here in Las Vegas, ironically at Soho Lofts in yeah, Las Vegas.
1: That is ironic. It's also, uh, It's also, the right thing just the yeah. right vibe and this we were just talking before we went on air that how beautiful the this is and how the uh the setting is so I mean we're looking at all of downtown las vegas it's beautiful
0: yeah actually that was my first question is i ask everybody you know where they're from and how they got to where they are mm. and you i i call it Boy. sort of a modern neoclassic american story right how far back do you want me to go uh at Let's start at the very, to quote uh, The yeah, Sound of Music. Let's very start at the beginning.
1: <laughs> it's a very nice place to start. Yeah. Well, okay. So uh, I was born in England. Uh, uh, just after World we're, we're war, we're in Bournemouth. Bournemouth, right? Bournemouth. So, are Bournemouth. you a
0: cherries supporter? I am. I, I, are I you surprised I know that? I, I'm surprised <laughs> that I'm not. So, for the uninitiated, uh, Bournemouth Football Club right. is uh, called the Cherries, and Actually, I, do, I don't
1: follow. I don't follow that football. I follow, you know, our football here. It's
0: interesting because um, people that you know why they're called the Cherries? No, I don't. Uh, The cherry color of their uniform, which is rather obvious, but kind of the cool sidelight of that is the original stadium is in a cherry grove. Oh, that makes
1: more sense. I think that probably the color of the uniforms came later. Probably. Wouldn't you think? uh, Yeah,
0: yeah, I would. Okay. So anyway, sidetrack on Bournemouth. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Football.
1: Bournemouth. I'm impressed that you even know of Bournemouth. Um, Yeah, my mom was an opera singer uh, in in Bournemouth um, and and in London, but she lived in Bournemouth. Um, And uh, my dad was in the United States Army stationed over uh, in Southampton. A waiting assignment to go, ultimately, uh, uh, to drive tanks and trucks. So, uh, during the war? During during the war. They met in 1944. Okay. I I wrote a song about that. So, Um, your
0: dad would have been one of hundreds of thousands of Americans that were probably staging D-Day, even, in 1944.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. My dad was the strong, silent type. I found out things after he passed away. Uh, From his brother that he never talked about for instance and this is a sidetrack, but for instance my dad drove survivors out of Auschwitz Wow. Never told us that. Never mentioned that. All I knew is that he drove trucks and tanks uh, in Germany during wait, wait the war. A minute.
0: How did you eventually find that out?
1: My his half brother, my uncle, told me. I, I was I, I, I'm writing a play, which I'm sure we'll get to, to talk about that a bit. And yeah. I called my my uncle and um, and I said I have some questions. And one of the questions was, uh, what do you know about my dad and the war? Because he never talked about it. Uh, and he told me that. And I said he never mentioned that to, to me or my sister. And he said, no, your dad. He, he wasn't about telling stories, and part of it, probably, he didn't really want to remember. He didn't want to remember yeah. some things that happened.
0: It's really the double uh, combo there, right? It's the most heroic generation, but also perhaps the most stoic yeah. generation. Boy,
1: that's, the, that's a great word. It certainly describes my dad. Stoic. Yeah. Um, so they met.
0: So they meet in the My dad was there. Well, my uh, dad
1: was, a, was a, a black soldier, so in those days, uh, the army was segregated. So, my father's unit, stationed in Southampton, um, they were doing a USO evening. And for some reason, my white uh, opera singing mother volunteered to go sing. For for the black troops, and that's how they met. My mom did an aria, and as I I talk about it, um, semi jokingly, you know, my dad, my mom sings a high note, and my dad goes, "Sing it, baby," you know, and <laughs> how uh, and that's kind of how they they that isn't kind of that's how they met, and um, romanced, and, um, and then after the war, uh, well, there,
0: yeah, that's a very interesting kind of leap there, though. There was lots of GI <laughs> local romance, a lot uh, who
1: never brought their. Brides or children to the States. Yes. Absolutely true.
0: And in your family history, the biracial yep. uh, aspect of that probably made things even rarer. Even, even
1: rarer and even more difficult. My mom told me that my dad wanted to stay in England. He would have been happier staying in England because he felt it would be better. The problem, a couple of problems with that. One was that my mother's family wouldn't have it they you know if she was going to marry a black man they, they weren't interested you know so uh a couple of years after the war probably i guess it was probably 48 47 48 um my mom and my mom and i came over from england my dad brought us over uh, to buffalo where his family lived so my mom be, went from being um a, a british opera singer singing with the Bournemouth Opera Company to living in an all-black ghetto in Buffalo, New York with, with a little biracial kid. Oh, my God! I know. It, it, it's, that's part of the story of the well, play. That's
0: an incredible part of the story. How did Buffalo receive the Holmes family?
1: Well, not well. My dad's family w- wasn't real interested either, uh, her, especially his mom, which is where we lived, in her apartment. Well,
0: this is a good point to cut into sort of what I know about this. It's a segue into your shows because... Mm-hmm. Uh, you delve into this personal history yeah. in your shows, right? I do. I do. And it's amazing about the fortitude of your family. Uh, they dealt with some pretty nasty stuff. Pretty nasty stuff.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I remember one incident when I was very young. And I, I have a, a, a vague, visceral remembrance of it. But I know it because it, it, the story was told many times in our family. And that is that um, I was about four uh, I, I actually about three because my my mom was pregnant. I was three because my, my, my sister was not born yet. And we were walking down the street in Buffalo and my mom and dad were holding hands and a guy at a bus stop took a look at him and just jumped on my father, white guy and started hitting him. And my mom saw a policeman and yelled for the policeman and the policeman said, which one is your husband? And when she pointed to my dad, he walked away. And I think that that was the defining moment when my father and mother said, we got we got to leave. And we moved to a town of five, literally 500 people, 25 miles south of Buffalo called Farnham. And that's where I grew up.
0: And was that a huge difference being down there? Was there it was, more safety or was it well, just that's more of the same it. stuff in a smaller town?
1: Well, and that's interesting because I think both are true. I think that it was safer just because there weren't very many people there. And we were the only family, when we moved there, we were the only family of color there. Um, but it was more we were ostracized. That was more what happened. It wasn't violent. Um, I mean, the kids loved to beat me up and call me names through school. You know what I mean?
0: Well, ostracization is sort of a, it's almost a nastier in, in a way, Kind of uh, racism and or exclusion.
1: Exclusion. My mom being the opera singer, my dad was a jazz singer. Okay, dad was singing with Leon Bibb on the streets of
0: Louisville so before we went in to the manor born. Yeah,
1: right. I mean, just yeah. You know, I I as far as singing. artistically, we had no choice. People say, yeah, when did you decide a, to be
0: a singer? I got it bad. It was never a decision. Uh,
1: yeah. So 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 um, when when we moved to Farnham, uh, we joined this little bitty church. My mom and dad joined this little bitty church. And she, here comes this trained soprano in this little choir of people who, you know, uh, and uh, and then my dad was in the choir. But the the part of it, the ostracization, the uh, came when I was old enough to understand that um, even though they were the back the backbone of the choir, they were never invited to any of the parties. They were never invited to anyone's homes. And I, and I, the reason I knew that is because my mother uh, actually decided we were going to have a party and invited the choir, and nobody came. And the pastor showed up long enough to say his wife was sick. We're very sorry that we we can't come, but I wanted to come by. Only one who came by. So that was the that. Terrible
0: so we're f- talking feeling. circa 1950s. 50s. Yep, 1950s. Yeah. How did your parents? Uh, handle that as far as teaching and instructing their children did they did they Lay out hope like this can change there. There's a better path how or no, Accept the things it, we it are more survival just get through it.
1: It was get through it. my mom's motto was to me be nice Just be nice be nice be nice you know, no matter what they say, be nice. Right. My dad, who was working three jobs, you know, he was the janitor at the church. He was working the steel plant and he drove uh, snow piles in the winter, you know, uh, w- would just say, just be tough, toughen up, toughen up. Yeah. You know, don't be a wuss. I don't know what the word he used was, but but, you know, probably to, not d- wuss. Yeah, probably not wuss. but <laughs> tough, toughen up, you know. And I'd say, well, dad, they call me this and he go, yeah, get used to it. So that was you know we got from one side be nice under any circumstances, and the other side was get used to
0: it. So yeah, that's the way a it's going to be. Then.
1: You know, so it was it was a very it, it was I, I talk about the fact that for me as a black man now in my life I had no idea what that meant until I got out of high school really and went into the army. The army was the holy cow here it is because that was '60s late '60s early right. '70s Vietnam, and when I went to basic training. Um, uh, And this is going to sound so stupid, but uh, there was a, you know, a form you fill out. And one of the questions was race. And it had basically two squares, Caucasian, Negro. I checked Negro. And so when I went in, for the first time in my life, I was in my own mind and officially a young black man in America. Except that the black people in America looked at me like, what are you (laughs) What are you trying to prove? What are you trying to do? Are you yeah. trying to pass? What are you? So that's when I started realizing that I, I was kind of caught in the middle of that stuff. Skipped a whole bunch of time there, didn't? Yeah. I? But sorry.
0: listen, that's very interesting, though, uh, because I think it informs you as an artist today, very and much that's so. why it's relevant. Yeah. And, and so. that's why it's worthy to talk about because I think we go so fast. Uh, now Mm -hmm. in America and trying to correct some of our societal wrongs like the one we're describing now that we forget that it's also important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and and we forget stories of struggle and coming through and like I've been dying to ask you since you first said it do you have an opinion now of who was right your mom or your dad
1: um huh well being nice served me very well through my life it also was problematic in the sense of being able to stand up for myself in situations that i look back on now and wish i had i'll give you a very clear one um in 1974 i had a hit record it went like this my name is michael i got a nickel i Big big hit. uh, Playground in my mind. Playground in my mind, right. Um, It was kind of a fluky record. Big hit. But it was a big hit. Now, what I wanted to do, I was uh, in Washington, D.C. at the time, um, and I was studying with a man named Frederick Wilkinson, voice teacher. His other students included Roberta Flack, and Roberta and I were great friends. And I wanted to do the kind of music Roberta was doing. Now, I have this kind of cute bubblegummy song with kids.
0: And she was like so fun. She
1: was, yeah, she was. And uh, so, so, okay, so I got lucky, had a hit record. Now they come to me, the record company comes to me and says, okay, we're going to do an, the next record is going to be called Shittily D. They played it for me. It had kids in it, it was even more bubblegummy, and everything inside me went, I need to say to them, no. I need to say, I I have a number two record in the world right now. Here's what I want to do. But instead, I was a nice guy and went along and said, okay, I guess you guys know you're You played it mom's way. So there there have been other instances where it didn't serve me well. But there are many instances where it did serve me well.
0: So the fear of being branded as only that, right? Then you're the kid song guy. Exactly. You know, it's... It's these decisions that we make and and everybody
1: in their lives, you know, we make decisions and um, and we make some good ones and we make some that don't turn out so well. Um, I think that a lot of my not so uh, turned out so well decisions were based on going along. Right. Going along because that's I mean, when it's my sister, if she was here, she would interrupt right now. And she'd say, my mother told Clint every day on the way out the door, be nice. And when he came home, she said, "Were you nice today?" So it was in my brain since I don't know, you know, kindergarten.
0: But uh, but your dad uh, in our business, your, your dad's a hundred percent. You cannot survive in our business without a backbone of iron,
1: uh, right? But the problem with my dad's approach, at least in my case, was that he never explained it to me. Ah. He never talked to me about what being a black man in America, if you will, meant. So when I say I grew up and the first time I experienced that part of my culture was in the army. I was already in my 20s, you know, and I I, I was like in a a wonderland of what in the world am I supposed to do?
0: Were you, that's interesting that you first identify, I think we talked about another great show that Playhouse fans are familiar with. By a very talented young man with a similar uh, background, right. uh, Bill Posley, who did a show called "The Day I Became Black." I know, and, and
1: I, I, I'm going to. I, I googled him and, and stuff, yeah, and I want and to reach Yeah, and it's interesting
0: because he had a similar, like it wasn't an army thing, but after similar sort of mom advice, dad advice. Uh-huh he self-identified finally yeah and it sounded like it took the army for you would you say that 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 you said that's the first time you truly self-identified as a black man yes and i wasn't accepted why did you choose black
1: instead of white that's a great question and i don't know if i know the answer i i think it had to do with music
0: how dark was the color of your skin at that time, and was that a factor? It's, it's about
1: what it is now. Yeah, except that have a good tan. But
0: yeah, you got a fabulous but, tan. Uh, <laughs> you got a Vegas tan.
1: But no, but I mean, I mean, you know, I look looked like like my, my kids. If you met my three children, they yeah. could be
0: anything. They, yeah. the, the other thing. That, well, I'm not just saying this. To me, your kids look American. Exactly, and and and, they've had their own struggles
1: with all this nonsense, but. Um, The other factor, which also involved the Army, was that I met my first, I had my first black woman, my girlfriend, right, Uh, who um, was uh, going to Hampton University. Had studied in London for a year in the Old Vic. She was an actress, um, and she was going on to Catholic University in Washington in their theater program. And I met her. She was the first black girl would even look at me. You know that. You know, like, and and I well, think well, look she, at
0: you in that way. Uh, pardon me. I look at you in that way. In that way, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Look
1: at me in that way. And it was it was amazing to me because again, she was at Hampton, which is an uh, almost entirely black college. Yeah. You know, it's an HBCU. And and I would go there and hang out with her friends. They'd be talking about my on. And they'd be talking about James Baldwin and they'd be talking about Nina Simone and they'd be talking about all all these people that I had no real knowledge of, you know, and felt, again, like a fish out of water. Like, I don't even know how to start the conversation, you know? Um, so I had the Army, and then I had Brenda, is her name, um, who became my wife, uh, who educated me. And, and I think at that point, that's when I really began to, to self-identify, if you will, and make my choices.
0: Were you identifying as an artist by the time you entered the Army, or did that come later? Um, I think that's still coming. I
1: think that... Uh, it, <laughs> Wow, that's a great! Oh, I have a great. You want to hear a great story about that? We love great stories yeah, I, on let, this let podcast. See, this is kind of an. Un, <laughs> this is kind of an unbelievable. We live story. for great stories. Okay, I, I, I won't tell the ninety-minute version. I'll tell <laughs> the, the three-minute version. Two minutes anyway. So, in in, in those days, uh, uh, you were going to go to Vietnam, right? Uh, I flunked out of college because I was singing every night and I didn't really care about it. And I look. That's another one, thing. I look back and go. Dude, uh, should have paid attention. But uh, so I flunked out, and I was about to be drafted, and I heard about the Army music program. You had to enlist, which meant three years, But you would be I would play trombone also. So I so I enlisted to be in the Army music program. So they sent me to Little Creek, Virginia, which is an Army Navy school of music to learn the marches and whatever. And then at some point I would be sent off somewhere to play trombone in a military band. Right. That's what that's my three year enlistment. Of course, as soon as I got there, I told everybody, I'm a singer. I I really, I'm a a singer. I I play trombone, but I'm a singer. And they went, well, you know, tough luck. You know, you're here to play trombone. While I'm there, General William Westmoreland, who was the head of the Army in those days, sees a performance of the United States Army Chorus at the White House and notices there are no people of color in the entire chorus. So he sends out a thing to the School of Music. If you have any people of color who are singers, we would love them to come to Washington and audition. I went to Washington, there were seven of us. I was the only one who got in. And the reason I got in is because I read music and my mother had given me voice lessons from the time I was 10 years old. So I became the first African American in the United States Army chorus. They sent me up there. Within a month of being there, I get a call in now, you've got to remember, this was Vietnam. The singers in the Army Chorus were phenomenal. They were the best singers in the world who didn't want to go to Vietnam.
0: Right. Because uh, well, this it, is a non-combat position,
1: clearly. Yes, right. Position, yeah. just, clearly. Singing, man, yeah. At the White House, at different functions. Right. and Ceremonial. So the, these guys, a lot of these guys went on literally to sing at the Metropolitan Opera Company. A couple of them went to Germany to sing, uh, you know, German leader. They were great singers. And here I come, this little pop singing guy, right? <clears throat> oh, I, I forgot one element of the story. Um, that's not important. So I go up to Washington, and I audition. I get in. Within a month, I get a call in. We're doing a concert at Carnegie Hall, and we want you to do a solo. And I'm thinking this is going well. I'm think I'm <laughs> thinking two things. Hey, this is this is going well. And why me? You got all these incredible Someone singers. Ask, don't well, tell. here's the song. Oh, that's Navy. Song. Here's the song. They wanted me to sing. Got to jump down, spin around, pick a bale of cotton. That was the song. <clears throat>
0: That I, I sang I, the, at Carnegie Hall. You can't see my face out there. I'm stunned. Truth. So I sang, gotta jump down, spin
1: around, pick a bare of cotton, gotta jump down. Clearly. This is step and fetch it stuff. Exactly. And and again, well, I'm in the army. What, what am I going to say, right? So so, uh,
0: it, it, it it's amazing. Steve, well, hold on. This is too interesting. Yeah. Did, did you have a crisis of conscience at that time? or did you- Nope. Or were you just getting along? And, I was getting and along. It's the freaking army, for God's sakes. You don't disobey orders.
1: Exactly. And my mom and dad came to the concert. And my mother, of course, was, oh, my goodness, my son sang at Carnegie Hall. And, and my was... father was like, yeah, that was great. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Nice son. Right?
0: That was a real wow. uh, parting of the waters. Heavy. Yeah. It, it was very heavy. Uh, but wait a minute, did, do you, even though beyond the choice of that material, which it shows you hopefully how much times have changed, I mean, that would just be outrageous to right. think about putting somebody like you in that position today. It was, that feels outrageous. I look
1: back now and it's, it's obvious they finally had someone of color in the course, so let's give them a Negro spiritual, Yeah. you know? Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. But did, did that... But you still, regardless of material, mm-hmm. got to solo at Carnegie Hall. I did get to solo and at Carnegie And just beyond these uh, round, the trappings of that, the experience of that must have launched you into another gear as an artist.
1: Well, it was obviously an incredible thrill to just be on that stage. And I have performed there since as a professional. But, yeah.
0: I, it, I mean, it, was it as like. Did you re? Did you realize in the army that this is definitely what you're going to do when you get out of the oh, army?
1: Oh, I realized that forever. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was singing at five years old. Yeah. I-, I was my mother's uh, deferred career, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, did I mean, she live vicariously abs- through it? Oh God, yes. Which which put me in in a difficult position with my father through through the years. it was. It seemed the more success I had, the further away my father. Drifted from me and and I didn't understand that that for a hundred years.
0: It felt like a bond with your mom It
1: felt like my mother was oh my oh my son look at my son If you ever talk to my sister, she'll tell you the same thing for her. It was same thing for her My sister's a wonderful singer She sang for 20 years with the United States Navy band toward the world so but to my mother It I was it. I was the golden child. I was the golden boy Um, and again, that's that's also uh, and that
0: wasn't going down so well with dad
1: No, and again, I didn't understand it. I didn't know I mean, when I finally
0: its is—and
1: when I finally made enough money to give my mom and dad stuff, they never had like a trip to Hawaii or, 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 or a trip to Vegas I w- when I was opening for Cosby or Joan Rivers or somebody and, and thinking this would be the most exciting thing to fly him out here and blah, blah, blah. And my father would be like, yeah, so where do you go to have fun around here? While my mother would be, ah, oh, I
0: can't believe I met Joan right. Rivers. She's so nice. You know, I mean, it was such a dichotomy. Actually, let's make that leap. Let's get you from the army to Vegas. Okay. How did that happen? So... Now let's get you out of the army, yeah, okay. and then
1: I start my career. Where,
0: where, where do you land out of, when you're discharged? Where are you in D.C.,
1: which is where I was stationed. <clears throat> Stayed there for ten years. Um, that's where I had oh, my. So record. you built your career <clears> out <throat> of out of D.C. Out of DC. W- Roberta Flack was in D.C. That, so I, I, I mean, you know, so when I say my teacher uh, Wilkie and mm-hmm. and Roberta, and I, I was in D.C. until the year nineteen eighty one, and uh, then I moved to L.A. for my career, you know. Right.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, where were you career-wise when you got out of D.C. and went to L.A.? Where you well, a I had hole, my hit. You had you hit. I had my so, hit like that. You charted, so people are interested in talking to you. Right. Uh,
1: yes, uh, people are interested in talking to me. My agent wanted me to do sitcoms. I, I wasn't interested. That's another interesting thing about the biracial thing. She'd send me up for you know a thirty-two-year-old doctor uh, black doctor and I'd walk in and the casting director would look at me and go, no, it's for a black, it's doctor. For a black guy, And I'd yeah. say, I'm, I'm black. And they go, <laughs> well, you know, look like it. Right. Yeah. So after about five of those, I said, just send me off for a 35 year old doctor, either I get it or not, you right. know? Right. Um, but that was, uh, I lived in, in, uh, LA and did a lot of stuff, um, performing because I had the record. So I had, you know, I had access to perform sure. in uh, Lake Tahoe and Reno. Um, uh, and then, um, The next big thing that happened for me was in the 80s, uh, Joan Rivers, who I toured with, had a TV show on Fox. uh,
0: She's one of the great uh, patrons and uh, supporters of the Playhouse when she was with us. And we miss her dearly. Oh uh, Boy, do we. She was a terrific lady. Uh,
1: she was. People asked me about her. She was fantastic. I mean, people know
0: her persona on air, but uh, totally the real deal behind the scenes.
1: I'm glad you say that because that's so true. She, For me, when she got her show, which was 1986 or 87, um, one night we were on tour and I asked her, because I lived at this, at this point, I'm back. On the East Coast, and I said, "How's it going uh, with the show?" And she said, "Oh, it's it's you know we have our band, we have our band leader." She said, "We're still looking for our announcer." And she looked at me. And she said, "Say, say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Joan Rivers." I said, "Ladies and gentlemen, Joan Rivers." She said, "No, no, say it like it's a, ladies and gentlemen, Joan Rivers." They flew me out to L.A. to audition to be her announcer. Uh, I auditioned for the head of Vox, uh, and uh, they didn't want me because they wanted a blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Guy to counterbalance Joan's ethnicity Right Um, But Joan called I auditioned I sweat pouring off (laughs) A hundred times Joan Right right, Did the whole thing So uh, I was going to go back To New Jersey And Joan said Can you stay another day And I said of course And she said Because I'm going to tell them That I want you And I'm going to explain why Because I trust you Because you could sing On the show Blah 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 Yeah Next day they called me back in I auditioned And I got the job Because Joan Fought for me so I moved back to L.A. Didn't expect
0: that we were going to bond over Joan Rivers yeah. today, but we kind of harked. She was my,
1: <laughs> she was like, uh, the, yeah, yeah, I loved her. yeah, I loved her so much. And so I was the announcer on the Joan Rivers I show. I never knew that. Yep. Uh, and I also then became the announcer on Arsenio when he took over. And one night I went, Arsenio Hall. And he went, I love the way you, are. oh, the, 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 oh. and I said, I said, you want me to do it longer? He said, yeah. So I went, Arsenio Hall. And that became his trademark. That's me.
0: I remember watching him with my good friend, Steve Heitner, when that program first came on. And he just turned to me and said, this guy is going to be amazing. It's like, look at him. Look at that beautiful African-American man in a $3,000 suit. Right. Just killing it.
1: Another wonderfully generous guy. Arsenio was so generous, he knew what I did. He knew that I was not an announcer, that I was a singer. And every chance he got, he would feature me. He would bring me out to talk. He was, and then, then he left Fox and went on, and they yeah. didn't want an announcer on camera. So I didn't take it from there. But uh, he, uh, he was a very generous guy. I see him every once in a while. Funny, generous, as Joan was just brilliant. And my other hero, who is unfortunately difficult to talk about these days, is Cosby. I mean, We're
0: guys. Boy, that got complicated.
1: Yeah. Oh, so I'm so sad. So yeah, sad. I mean, but again, I, I knew the others. It's like we all have the good and the bad, right? We all go sure. through that. Unfortunately, Bill's was pretty bad. Um, but he was great to me. Co- Cosby fought hard for me. You, you talk about a Vegas, because the kind of question was, how did you get to Vegas? Yeah was bill, it bill that, that bill brought first me well not that wasn't the big time bill brought me when he was the huxtable when he had yeah. he was the biggest star in the world yeah he brought me to caesar's palace i was already uh kind of a headliner in atlantic city but not here so in rehearsal he came, comes out and he says how long are you, how long are you doing you know and i said well they they, they told me uh, 20 minutes and he goes well how long do you do in atlantic city i said well i, I do between 40 and 60 because i'm a headliner there he says how long would you like to do? I said, I'd, I'd love to do 40, because then I could do my, my show. Yeah,
0: I could set it up and deliver it.
1: I could deliver it, right. So he calls out the stage manager and says, Mr. Holmes will be doing 40 minutes. So, so we rehearsed 40 minutes.
0: I'm guessing the stage manager uh, he, just said yes. Just said, sir. exactly right. <laughs> exactly
1: right. Uh, there was no, no qualms or questions. No. So, so I go out opening night, and I do 40 minutes. And we got a huge response. And Bill comes out, and he says, Come here, come here. And he says to the audience, Blah blah blah, and then he says, So, what song did you like the best? And I was doing I Go to Rio, Peter Allen's I Go to Rio. I go to Rio. He says, Let's do it again. And he goes up, when
0: My baby smiles at me, me. I go, I go to, to Rio. Rio. He's now
1: Cosby's back there playing bongo drums while I sing. So What's I do I Go to Rio again.
0: Thing? Oh, I'm a salsa fellow. I'm right? a salsa
1: fellow. Yeah. When my baby smiles at me. I go to Rio. I
0: love that song. I do too. I love Peter. It, it uh, does, as the lyric says, just lightens up my life.
1: Yeah. I, I may do that song again, now that we're talking about it. I
0: love that song. And Peter Allen's arrangement on that is fabulous. It's
1: classic. Classic. So I do that. Now I'm, now I'm on stage for almost 50 minutes. So now Cosby comes down, and he says, did you sing a love song? I said, well, yeah. And he said, did you sing one to her? And he just points to some woman in the front. And I go, well, no. And he goes, sing a love song. Now I'm out of material, because we only rehearse, right? Well, maybe so is Bill. Uh, yeah, Have you yeah, ever yeah. thought of that? <laughs> <laughs> So I turn to my piano player and I go uh, a love song, and he says, "You are so beautiful." And I go, "Oh, okay," because we just did that together. So now I sing, "You are so beautiful." Now I'm on stage for almost an hour, right? And I leave. Cosby does his set. It's opening night, so now the president of Caesars. By the
0: way, isn't that another Peter Allen song? People, no, 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 no. You are so beautiful is Olivia uh, Joe Cocker, newton John, Joe uh, Oh, okay. You are oh, so Joe beautiful, Cocker, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So now I've been on an hour Bill does his set And, and after the show Everybody's backstage The president of Caesar's Palace the, All the agents And he brings me out From my dressing room To meet everybody And he says to my agent How much is Mr. Holmes making? And my agent tells him And Cosby says Double it Take it out of mine And I'd like his things Moved out of The opening act dressing room Into the headliner dressing room Move my things Into the opening act dressing room And I'm standing there Going what just happened?
0: Right? Yeah, what, what
1: was the root of this? So the next night uh, I see Bill, and and they've moved my stuff into the headliner's dressing room. And I say, "Cuz," I said, y- "You didn't have to do that." And he says, "Sometimes you really have to make people pay attention, and I want them to pay attention to you." That was his way of saying this isn't just some opening act. This is so. When I talk about Bill, he did m- several things like that for me in my well,
0: life. Well, that sounds like he majorly platformed you.
1: Help me. So that
0: was at Caesars.
1: Caesars Palace. And, and
0: then did you stick... Had you met Kelly yet?
1: No. No, no, no.
0: So you're at Caesars. Circa what year are we talking about now? 80s. Late 80s. 80s. Late okay, 80s. Yeah. yeah. So late 80s. And so what happens next?
1: Next, um, uh, I was on Joan's show uh, as her announcer. Entertainment Tonight...
0: That's shooting out of L.A. The, still shooting out... Time, and this yeah. is
1: 87. Yeah. Uh, Entertainment Tonight sees me and uh, uh, hired me to do... Um, Music uh, uh, stories for Entertainment Tonight. So they would fly me to New York. And I, I did some I Joel Gray backstage when he was doing cabaret. Wow. I did an interview with him. Barry Manilow's Christmas special. I was on set with him. I, Gladys night in the Pips. Blah blah blah. I did for about two years. I did that, and then in nineteen. No, no, so, so I'm sorry. So now we're now we're not in eighties. Now we're in nineties. Now
0: yeah we're, yeah, we're
1: we're in nineties. Uh, we're in late eighties because W O R in New York. See caucus channel nine. Channel nine saw me on <laughs> Entertainment Tonight, and they wanted to do a primetime talk show. Oh, okay. And so they uh, brought me to New York to to meet to with, that to pitch that. Um, and they did three pilots. They did me. They did Roy Firestone, and they did Joe Piscopo. They financed three pilots. Uh, They picked me, and in 1991, I moved back to New Jersey to do my primetime talk show, and there, Joan, again. Uh, Obviously, to do a a, a pilot, I'm... Jones said, "Absolutely, I'll do it." Cosby said, "Absolutely, I'll do it." So, so you're
0: coming with big guns. I come right in with away. the big
1: guns right away. So we did that. For, I did that for a year, and it was one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. When I see the,
0: what did you like about it?
1: I like that we created a show every single day, and we did it. We, you know what I mean? I'd go in at nine o'clock. They'd, here's your guests. Here's what they want to talk about. Instead of a monologue, I'd open with a song. Here's the song we're going to do. We'd rehearse it five o'clock. We'd do the show. they'd hand me, here's what you're doing tomorrow. I'd go home, I'd study it, come in the next day, do a new show. It was so... Satisfying to do a, a literally a new show every single day, and to work day. that hard. It was it was hard, but I don't know. But it's
0: know. satisfying. That's right. You know that hard work and seeing it pay off and having it delivered daily. Yeah, you didn't have to wait. There's yeah. no
1: deferred, de- delayed grat- gratification. It's you there. did it, man. You know, for better or for worse, that was a great year, and we won an Emmy award, a local Emmy award, oh, and then the station was sold, and uh, they didn't want to do any original programming. They
0: replatformed. I remember right at that time.
1: Yeah, so that's when I wrote my play.
0: So let's talk about that, because that segues into our world of theater, and uh, Clint and I had met a few years ago, and I had heard that Clint had put together a show that was designed as a Broadway musical, correct? So tell us about uh, the inspiration of writing that. uh, I saw a reading or some version, I believe, of that. Did you? Um, Here or? um... I want to say, did we read it? Did you do a reading here? I or, did a
1: reading at UNLV.
0: That's my. I might have okay. went to that. Oh my gosh! Okay. Yeah. Because I just saw that. Because I was. Yeah. Because I, I was interested. Yeah. And that you were on my radar at that. time. I did not know that, Darren. Yeah, and the Playhouse radar because your intimacy of storytelling mm-hmm. uh, matches up so uh, keenly with what we do. Well, which is uh, basically just tell. We'll have that conversation. We'll have that story. conversation again. But tell me about um, the challenge of writing a show. Mm-hmm. What? What? You know. Go through that process a Paper little Paper
1: Mill Playhouse was five uh, miles. Which is what, the miles,
0: elite, uh, you know, pre, pre-Broadway tryout right. places.
1: So the Paper Mill Playhouse was 10 minutes from where I lived in New Jersey. And we'd go off to see plays. And one night I went to see Nine, the play Nine. And it was told through uh, largely through a narrator, and I, I watched it. And I, I went home, and I said...
0: That was Raul Julia. I yeah, Raul do, Julia do it on Broadway. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I don't think he did it at the Paper oh, Mill.
0: movie. He may oh, have. Where do I associate Raul with?
1: I, Nine. He did. He maybe he did the movie. Maybe. No, you know who did the movie? Uh, the guy who did Fosse. Uh oh, Schneider. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, he, he may have played it Anyway, <laughs> the, the play just I I just went wow. I have a story, and I went home that night. And I I, I wrote literally a nine-page treatment for my mom, my dad, la-la-la-la-la, la. la, 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 made an appointment with Angelo Del Rossi, who at the time ran the theater, and um, he knew of me as a performer, so he said, come over. He loved the story. And I started to write it with Robert, his his in-house director. God, that's terrible. I can't think of his last name. Forgive me, Robert. Um, For a whole year. I would play Atlantic City and I would, on my day off, I'd come back and we'd sit and I'd have written a bunch of pages, hammer, out, hammer it out, hammer stuff, it out, hammer yeah. it out. A year later, in February of 1996, uh, we started workshopping it and we ultimately put it up at the paper mill in 1996.
0: So the first time you workshopped it, people are always interested in that process. What was it like doing it in front of an audience for the first time? Crazy. Because it, I was so was it what you expected it not not the experience the show. The, it was You know the difference? <laughs> the experience and the show were totally
1: different than I expected. Because I don't get nervous not going up on stage anymore. I get excited, you know, if it's a big opening whatever, I get excited. But I don't get nervous. I don't get like, oh my God, why am I doing this and can I get out of it, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? That thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was doing I think we this, all know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when this thing, I remember, I forget the theater. We didn't do it. The, the first reading wasn't at the paper mill. It was sponsored by the paper mill, but it was in another theater. It was, you know where it was? It was in Princeton. Oh, uh, yeah, well, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: There's great little theaters down right.
1: there. Right. And I remember sitting backstage during rehearsal that day going, why in the world would anybody want to hear this story? What in the world? Why am I doing this? You know, they're going to hate it. Who could could, possibly uh, care? Who could possibly care? (laughs) You know, all all of those things and all these songs I'd written, is anybody, you know? Um, So it was very frightening doing it. I was very nervous. Uh, I didn't know, uh, for instance, one of the things uh, Robert, the director, told me was, no, you don't bow after a song. No, you don't know. Not a, after, the, <laughs> Not after the, song. the after the big ballad, you don't go.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, it's you're an actor. You know, I mean, I really, I was that naive. Yeah. You don't lead into a song on Broadway by saying, "I really don't know how to express myself," but perhaps, but, this, but perhaps song. this song will help you. <laughs> Here's a little song I wrote. Right,
1: all of those stupid things yeah. in my brain. So, so uh, that was a big learning experience doing it. Um, we had great people. LaChance played my wife. Wow. Um, uh, Adam Wade played my father. Nancy Ringham was my mother. All ex- experienced. So you're in actors. it. Also, I, I was in it. I played yeah, me. You're playing you. I was the least experienced actor in the in the piece. So there was a part of me that but already the most perfectly knew cast. But I was. Yeah, I knew what the hell I was singing <laughs> about. So so anyway, uh, it obviously went well, and then there was a question and answer period, which obviously people would say things like, I'm not quite sure I understand the, 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 your father and mother. Why why were they together? You know, uh, these guys, which is what you learn from, yeah. and you rewrite and you rewrite and you rewrite. By the time we did it at the paper mill, um, the, we got two reviews, two big reviews, major reviews. New York Times review said something like, um, who is this guy and why should we care, although there were certain elements of it that really worked, but who is this guy and why should we care? The uh, Newark Star-Ledger said it was the, the next major uh, Broadway show, right? Wow. So we had a real dichotomy in their no reviews. Kidding. Uh, we had five, four or five producers that wanted to take it to its next step. Don Taffner wanted to take it to London, and he actually flew me to London, took me around, showed me where they would build the sets, and then w- they were going to do it outside of London and take it to the Shaftesbury in mm. the West End. That yeah. was one. Two was uh, G4, which is Kenny uh, Greenblatt, who had big, uh, and they, they wanted to do it. Um, uh, I forget, the, but the, the, the company we went with was um, Marty Richards and Sam Cruthers. Producer circle, uh, because they seemed to, to to me to have a real feel for what was missing, which what I felt was missing in, in the play, and um,
0: and also so, so that's for sort of the uninitiated. So yeah, producers would go to an artist like yourself, say we're interested in your show, right. And they t- they would take what we call an option agreement out on your show, exactly, giving right. them the exclusive rights to produce your show right. in regions, territories, for it, a amount of time, a term. It, it,
1: exactly. And the paper mill, that was the other. They wanted and to produce And the paper mill, as they they original to, producers, on are to, they in on it, it
0: and not forgotten. It. Yes. So, but uh, people forget that that's a two-way street. Not only is the producer... Looking for, obviously, the great material, and they want to option it and produce it. That's something I do. But also, it's very important for the artist to find the right producer and and have the right trust relationship, especially if changes are being discussed and if new ideas. Right. Talk about Uh, that. Well, yes. Because here we had this
1: hit at the paper mill with with a lot of interest. Um, Some of the producers didn't even talk to me about changes. They just loved loved it. I internally knew that there was a deeper part of the play that wasn't being addressed i i i knew that it was a partially at least about at the time and even more so now about race and that wasn't really other than the little kid who didn't fit in addressed and marty richards and sam Carruthers really understood that to me right and so they they uh we did a workshop at the john hausman
0: Right? On Theatre uh, Row in New on York. On Theatre
1: Row. And I'm big time now, right? Yeah. And the plan was the workshop. Then we were going to the Hartford Stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was already listed in their program. Then we were going to the Variety Arts off Broadway. And based yeah. on success, we'd go to Broadway. That was 1997. The first day of workshop, I get a call from Marty. We just lost $300,000. One of their investors was going to jail because of some da da da. But don't worry. We'll oh, get it back.
0: Famous last There words. it is. So we did the workshop. I mean, it's bad enough to hear that they've lost the $300,000. What may be more crushing words are, don't worry. Don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere in there, there was an embezzlement word. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. So, there's you know, jail time. You you jail and, time for this uh, <laughs> yeah, person,
1: whoever yeah. it was, well, right? The life of producing. <laughs> so, so we did the workshop, and they never uh, got the money. And they were sued, actually, by Hartford Stage, because Hartford yeah, Stage had, it had, had a deal. Money. So there i was where's my show there where's my show and and i'm you know don't worry uh well don't worry turned into not answering phone calls hey, and it was yeah, a two, i think it was a two-year say. option so there we sat with so with,
0: that's the uh the cautionary tale about that other side be careful who you're getting into uh, yeah. a deal with and for how long because not only that exclusive means exclusive. If they don't do it, nobody else can. You couldn't do a thing for two years. So you're dead in the water for two years on this show. Yeah, that
1: was, that was really, really difficult. Um, yeah.
0: well, how did, so it, it, on a
1: couple of levels. One of the show, but the other level was, as I told you, we were going to the Hartford stage and we were going to the, yeah. So I had no work. This is what I was doing for the yeah, year that 1997.
0: Was your, your year was That was my out.
1: year. So once that fell apart... <clears throat> now what? I'm sitting there with a lovely house... And no way to pay the mortgage. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and it was, that was a very difficult year uh, financially and, and emotionally, sure. yada, yada. That brings us to Las Vegas. During that period of time, Steve Wynn had seen me in Atlantic City, and he had a big benefit, a retinitis pigmentosa benefit in uh, Salt Lake City and asked me if I would come out and do the show. So I flew out there and we did the show. And afterwards he thanked me and blah, blah, what, what else are you doing? And I, I told him about the play and yeah blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, I'd love to hear the material. And I said, well, I'd lo- love to perform it for you. But there's an option that won't be over for, you know, end of that, about a month later, my agent calls me up and says, Steve Wynn wants to bring you to Vegas. Wow! And I, I said, great, when?" And he said, he wants to bring you to Vegas for a year to play the Golden Nugget, oh my! which goodness. he owned at the time. This is November of 1998. And the reason I remember it so well is because my father was uh, dying at the time. And I would be—I lived in New Jersey. I'd drive up to see my dad and it was, uh, conversations and blah, blah, blah. So and uh, in February of 99...
0: So, boy, this becomes a pretty momentous year of your life. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, it was the worst year of my life in a lot of ways. <clears throat> and then February of 99, I come out here Without my family, because I don't know what's going to happen, right? Really, right? He said, I will pay you for a year. Actually, it was about nine months. Uh, if if I close the show in two weeks, I will pay you for a year. So I wow. canceled everything I had, all the bookings I had, and I flew out here. This
0: is the opposite of the Hartford story. Uh, exactly,
1: right? And um, I performed at the Golden Nugget. Uh, we performed there February. We closed, I believe, in August. And by that time, I had offers from three other casinos the venetian I mean, the, the show Bay- was hot harris I and, remember it was a big hit and people I, loved it
0: i signed a deal with harris um and not just because you're sitting here what's not to love that that was an amazing show thank you Clint. it thank really you. was thank you i mean and all I'm, your talents really you know i, I got came to do to the four you
1: talk about a, a, a perfect situation i i had the best band in town yeah. i had total autonomy in what i did and uh, you
0: had the right guy steve win at and, the right time at the right, the right place thing. saying i got you i got you i i, you. I, I, I believe in you I'm paying you,
1: and so that's music for what, artists, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. So then, when I went to Harris the year later, that was a year deal, and I brought my family out, and that turned into a seven-year deal.
0: Oh, that's interesting. What's the difference between like doing the show downtown at the Nugget, and then going to the Strip, if, or is there no difference? Big difference. Talk about that a little bit. What's the like? Is the crowd different? Is the rooms are obviously different, but the the the, the crowds are
1: different. Um, the perception at, at that time, especially, we're talking about 2000, right? Yeah. We're talking 20 years ago. Uh, the perception was, well, downtown. you know, yeah. Downtown is not really. Not as cool the, as it yeah, is. Now. Not, not nearly. And, uh, but the Golden Nugget was always a class hotel, even 20 years ago, yeah. you know. And Steve was Steve, right? Um, but the perception is, well, now you're on the strip in, in, in Vegas. And my manager. I'm
0: making air quotes. The big time.
1: The big time. My manager was very smart. I had an offer from the Venetian. I had an offer from then the Desert Inn all right, and Harris. And my man, we, we met with all three. And my manager said, let me tell you something. He said, the Venetian has already got Elton John doing X amount of weekends. They have uh, someone else did that you're third, at least, going in. You're third. Uh, the Desert Inn is over here. You know, It's not in the heart of the strip. Harris, you're it
0: because Harris if, is right in that uh, cluster right in of the heart,
1: Caesars and it's all right there. They will give you the billboards, the cabs because you will become the face of in ter- terms of entertainment, the face of the hotel, it, which is exactly takes, what And happened. here
0: it takes that juice behind it does.
1: Cuz nobody knew me. Yeah. Nobody knew me
0: but here. They have a platform that can make people know you very quickly here.
1: And they believed in the show and as I say, it was a year turned into 7 years. And,
0: and then that's a massive hit and then and then weren't that's you, why I'm in still fact that my I hope I got this right, cause, right. Uh, but you were Las Vegas Entertainer of the Year in some well, of those a, years. A few times. A few of those times, Yeah, right? I was Singer of the Year and I Entertainer of the Year. That's not a small year. thing. I, I know, I mean, especially... Hugely he, talented here. people are yeah, in right. the pool for that award. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, congrats to that. Thank you. I mean, you. I remember that that and that that was high achievement. It was a great time.
1: I, again, I, I was every night doing doing what I loved under the best of circumstances. Living, living the life. Living the life. It was fantastic. So
0: let's segue a few uh, a few minutes left. Let's segue into, I've told you quite intimately about our plans for Soho Playhouse, mm-hmm. coming to Las Vegas, trying to bring an off-Broadway style theater here. What's your reaction to that, honestly? What, well, what do you I, think of that?
1: I first heard of it uh, through Samantha.
0: So Samantha is uh, one of our employees. That's right. Actually, our theater employee, I told you, her nickname in the house is Samlet, a la Hamlet. Yeah, she's fantastic. (laughs) She is great. Um,
1: And I was extremely excited to hear it because I'm a nightclub guy, but I think that I'm a theater guy. You know, when my wife and I go to New York, I used to look and see if the Mets were in town. Now I look to see what's playing off and on Broadway, right? Yeah. uh, so to me, it's it's it was a ex- really exciting thing. It still is a very exciting thing for, I think, f- for the town. But I'm being a little selfish here. Yeah. Uh, I I look at opportunities to get up on my feet as an actor and to... Uh, uh, t- t- I think it's an extension of our city, just like Smith Center. When the Smith Center opened, it, it, it made our, our city more of a city.
0: I mean, I completely agree. I think, and uh, Myron Martin, who put that project together right. and directs it currently... Uh, that was an amazing leap for Las Vegas and downtown Las Vegas a non-gaming uh, major cultural institution right. anchored downtown and, and I you and, and it's going it, gangbusters. and it's, he,
1: it's so successful and I was Myron is uh, one of my best friends in life I'm God Father to his daughter Molly and He's, a he's great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy We've known each other From New York When I had my TV show mm-hmm. He represented uh, uh, Baldwin Pianos And so he would come out With the Baldwin artists That's how we knew each other And then he comes here And I go Why are you going to Vegas And ten years later Hey, bye I'm coming out, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it, it it was um, um, uh, Made our city More of a city uh, And I think The Soho Playhouse Can continue that I, 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 I do I, I think that And uh, um, it's to have a legitimate, off Broadway house, one that has a, a reputation, one that has an image, one that that has su- such success that that you've had nice. in New York to come out here um, establishes it our city even further as as a, as a theater city. And I know some of the even larger plans you have, yeah. which will e- even make it e- even make it more so. So yeah. my first reaction and my current reaction is that I'm very excited about it. And um, whatever you know, uh, part in it I can have, even just as someone who supports it, is exciting to me.
0: Well, I can see you playing uh, several parts in this, um, because we also share beyond why you're perfect for what we do is I think the storytelling nature of your show, uh, again, and the shows that you've done is very much in line sort of with the aesthetic. Uh of what off-Broadway is. There's that great saying I use all the time. It originally comes from Edward Albee. And he said, people go to Broadway to look, they come off-Broadway to listen. Hmm. And I think that's a perfect way to sort of... I've always loved that. That's the motto of Soho Playhouse now. Because it evokes exactly what it is. That intimate... We're going to share real personal storytelling and uh, no holds barred. So
1: much of it is ex- exciting. So yeah. so much of the, you know. Uh, you and know, do you think
0: there's an audience for it here? People are saying, oh, well, I don't know I about Vegas. And that's, of course, the obvious and constant question I get. Which it, are, well, that's what I was going to say. That I think that
1: Smith Center has opened up that audience. I remember when it first opened and I would talk to people because I was playing in Myron's Cabaret. Yeah. And I would people would say, well, what casino are you in? And I said, well, not in the casino. I'm at the Smith Center in Myron's Cabaret. And they would, some of them would say, oh, that's kind of snooty. And they, I go, no, it's not. Why would you think it is? Well, you know, Broadway and they have orchestras. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, N- there's nothing snooty about it. This, this is music. I'm going to be doing what I do there. Uh, but there was a kind of a feeling in town that somehow that wasn't Vegas. Well, I think that has been pushed to the side. So I think that that opens up for what you want to do much more than it would have in terms of the, the uh, outlook from this, the city, you know, they'll be much more welcoming.
0: I think so. And I think uh, what's encouraging me is we've started our education program, Uh uh, as I told you a little bit about, and in our first classes, I see the level of talent that's here in Las Vegas. Yep. It's, it's exceptional. I mean, I'm running one of my best workshops I've ever run. That's fantastic. Uh, with 16 dynamic actors that are all different kinds that all live right here in Las Vegas.
1: I want to invite you to this composer showcase,
0: which. Yeah. Tell us it, about that it, well, because that's a cool idea. It is a and cool goes idea. Right along with what we what you're doing. share. We share a desire to uh, educate as mm-hmm. well as uh, entertain.
1: Um, it started by Keith Thompson. Keith Thompson was out here conducting Jersey Boys uh, and uh, when it closed, uh, looking for other things to do, he started this very, it was tiny. It was like 25 people in the audience and eight, six people who wrote songs. It's now become You Can't Get In, you know, and, and every songwriter in town wants to be a part of it. Richard Oberrocker, who wrote Bandstand, which got to Broadway a bunch of years ago, started coming in, and he said, well, I'm writing this show, blah, 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 here's a song from it, and he'd play it, and then next month he'd come in with another one, and then so he's... Wait a
0: minute. how was it constructed? How do you get in? How... Give what, me the whole, like... The whole
1: idea is, uh, at this point... Uh, if if someone were to have some s- song they wrote, they would uh, re- reach Keith Thompson Composer Showcase and he would say, great, s- send me the song, send me a video, let me know what it's about. And uh, if he felt that it was of the quality that should be there, um, you would you would come on um, um I, I i love going do there you
0: get to workshop your song or how have...
1: well you come out and you perform it you just perform and it, and you can talk about the, why you wrote it how you wrote it is it a part of a bigger project is it just a song i wrote you know mm-hmm. um and it's become it's come to the point where olivia newton john came one night with a song she wrote bill medley of the righteous brothers people came need in. a people place. need an outlet they want to come and go well i wrote this song does it any good does anybody want to hear it and it's so supportive because a, a lot of the people who come to it are either writers or performers themselves and they get it. And or people who just love to
0: be around the arts. And know uh, how and what to contribute relative to where it is in the process. Exactly right.
1: Exactly right.
0: So, so we're a, doing it, a great, like where I feel the first time some of all the synergies I've dreamed of for Soho Playhouse here are beginning beginning to come to fruition Through this same process, we had our first round of grants for writers and this class I mentioned. So now I'm bringing the Las Vegas playwrights with new plays into the workshop and having 16 of the best actors in town with the best writers in town, you know, rip the play apart, put it back together, truly workshop the work. And that's really exciting. That's exciting. And yeah, it's a similar thing to what we're
1: talking about with songs uh, yeah. now. So again, I think those things happening opens up what people aren't going to go, oh, I don't know what that's about. They're going to go, oh, that's exciting. You know, when you're talking to them about these ideas. Right. And, and I love it. So, so if you ask me what I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great piece of the puzzle for the city and also for all of us who write and who are art heads and, yeah. and want to hear what we're people out are there doing. Are, Yeah, we
0: are man. (laughs) Nothing more exciting in the world. Just walking around Vegas, you know, turn over a few rocks, you find some. Yeah, it's a lot of, and you know what else? A lot of people
1: came here to be in productions, like Jersey Boys, like Phantom of the Opera, and stayed. And and stayed. So, so there are so many really talented people out here who who will just rush to a workshop, rush to to be, you know, introduce their new their new stuff. You know,
0: do you see uh, yourself? Ever moving out of Las Vegas?
1: Um, Are you? Everybody's home base from now on. This is home base. I mean, I see myself moving out of Vegas when my play goes to London to be there to be in London as long as my play runs. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You know. I mean, that's kind of or New York or wherever. But I, I, my, my, my kids are here. My grandkids are here. uh, My wife's uh, family is here. To move out of Vegas now for any other reason than uh, professionally, I, I don't see. This is home.
0: Right. So uh, what's your grandest vision of cultural maturity for Las Vegas? Hmm.
1: I think that it just continues to grow and in in, in what you're doing with the Soho Soho Playhouse and what they've done with the Smith Center, it, it all contributes to that. I just, It's exciting to see it continue t- to grow. Um, I, I don't have any formula. I don't have any knowledge, I, I just know that it's, it's what my heart desires for anywhere that I would live, and I see it happening here.
0: I, now I'm a, I see why. Mm-hmm. I've become very, very fond of Las Vegas, particularly where we're coming to you from, which is the Arts District, yeah. a, a, a part of downtown Las Vegas. I love the Arts District because it seems to be one of the few neighborhoods in Las Vegas that has grown organically.
1: Absolutely. my son Brent is a sculptor and a painter um, and he's become a very big part of that part of the art district uh, at, at first he was upset with the the gentrification right he was like yeah, I don't know.
0: you know well, now because the danger like New York is people find these cool neighborhoods because the artists are there and everybody comes and the first thing that happens is the artists are economically pushed out exactly but now I think he he is he's become a part of
1: making sure that that doesn't happen or that that you know so yeah this is a very exciting again when i came here 20 years ago you know if you just said uh, i won't name the name but one of my friends who was a big star on the strip came to see me downtown when i first came here back in 1999 and he said to me he said great show like always he said but you know nobody's gonna come see it down here right <laughs> well
0: you know now you wouldn't. It, it say reminds that. me of one of my favorite Yogi Berra isms, <laughs> which is it was talking. He was talking to Mickey Mantle, and Mickey Mantle wanted to go out with him after the game in New York one night to the hottest new restaurant right. in town. And Yogi famously says, "Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded." <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: And we understand that. <laughs> and we
0: get it in theater, totally.
1: <laughs> so, I, 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 Darren, I, I, I think what you're, you're doing um, is, is very exciting. And, I appreciate uh, um, that. I, I, I hope for the best for you. I, Thanks. You know, I know it's a big undertaking.
0: So, I uh, recommend for anybody who hasn't, if you ever see Clint Holmes playing anywhere, uh, the, the classic saying is true. Run, don't walk To get yourself a ticket to that. And Clint, I'll look forward to some possible synergies between yourself and the Playhouse. Me too. Uh, And thank you so much for spending this wonderful hour with us.
1: I enjoyed it. I got to talk about myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Soho Playhouse podcast. hope that we inspire you to attend a show at our flagship Soho Playhouse in New York City or at our new location in Las Vegas or for that matter wherever creative theater lives in your town. If you like what you hear please tell a friend. If you have a question or comment reach out to us our email address is mail at SohoPlayhouse.com and to find out a lot more about who we are and what we do go to SohoPlayhouse.com And remember, as Edward Alvey said, people come to Broadway to look. They come off-Broadway to listen. ¶¶